Let's join together in prayer. Let's pray. Father, as we come again to look upon your word of truth, we ask once more that you will open our eyes that we may see you as you really are, that you will open our ears that we may hear and understand this message of your truth, and that you will open our hearts that we may not just be hearers of your word, but doers also. In Jesus' name, amen. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 2 as we continue to look at our series on Paul's gospel as he preaches it and as he lays it out for us in the book of Romans. And we've already looked through chapter 1 and how the gospel is God's power and it is power to save from God's wrath that is being revealed. Now we take a look further at what Paul has to say to us. Chapter 2. And beginning at verse 12. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law, since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. This will take place on the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, If you rely on the law and brag about your relationship to God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you're instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you're a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of infants, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who brag about the law, do you, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Circumcision has value if you observe the law. But if you break the law, you have become as though you have not been circumcised. If those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? The one who, who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you who, even though you have the written code and circumcision, are a lawbreaker. A man is not a Jew if he is only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, A man is a Jew if he is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, not by the written code. Such a man's praise is not from men, but from God. What advantage then is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, they have been entrusted with the very words of God. What if some did not have faith? Will their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. 
Let God be true and every man a liar, as it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. But if our righteousness brings out God's righteousness, our unrighteousness rather brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? I'm using a human argument. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as we are being slanderously reported as saying, and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result? Their condemnation is deserved. What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jew and Gentile alike are all under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every, eye, every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. <clears throat> now, I'll put a health warning on all this before we begin, but this is a huge passage, and we're going to take a very quick scan through it. And it is quite intense, so please do concentrate. And it would be helpful if you can t uh, keep Romans 2 and 3 open in front of you. So as we follow along at quite a high pace, you can keep up as we look at it. <clears throat> I want to draw your attention, uh, first of all, to a few stories that have been in the news over uh, this last number of months. Uh, they've been running through my mind. The first story is one of how the Scottish government... Uh, want to introduce legislation <clears throat> to make a minimum price for alcohol. <clears throat> You'll have heard it on the news. They want to use the law to change the social problems and to prevent uh, these problems in the country at the moment. Uh, and considering the vast majority of Scotland's problems, social problems are usually a result of alcohol abuse, we can see why. Now, there's another interesting story. It's about the Finnish government, and they're going to make it completely illegal, if they have not already done so, I'm not sure, completely illegal to smoke, even in your own home. Smoking will be totally illegal, just like murder. And another one is this. The, the Lib Dem leader, Nick Clegg, before he became Deputy Prime Minister, suggested uh, in an interview that all schools should have to, have to teach their children that homosexuality is perfectly normal. His words, not mine. Should have to. No opt-out clause, no anything. They must do it, is what he suggested. 
Now, all of these stories are interesting because in each case, the government or people, whoever they are, are seeking to, to change the way people think and the way people act by using the law. But I want to ask the question, is it possible to legislate morality? Is it possible to use the law to create a better society? Indeed, if we go back further, what has led to us to need to use the law to impose morality on society? And of course, whose version of morality uh, do we use? Who decides what is right and what is wrong? Who, who decides uh, what way we should live and what way we should act? And for, due to the increasing, of course, moral confusion in our society, there's no real way of providing a definitive ethic uh, from our human experience or human reason. After all, many people have different experiences and reasonable people come to reasonably different conclusions. Indeed, the more society turns from its Christian understanding, the more difficult it becomes to decide what is right and what is wrong. And so we try and provide a framework in which we can make a better society by more and more legislation. This past 50 years, this past 10 years, um, we have seen more and more legislation passed through Parliament, yet at the same time our society has witnessed the increase of crime and violence. And now the prisons are bursting at the seams. It seems that the more we try and legislate to make society better, the worse society becomes. But now let me turn to the final story I was thinking, I've been thinking about. The story of, if you remember it, Iris Robinson, the wife of the First Minister of Northern Ireland. You probably remember the story of corruption and a sex scandal. But what's interesting about the story is that it highlights the basic problem that humanity has. Iris, of course, um, is famous for her views on homosexuality and airing them on uh, public radio and getting into whole sorts of trouble. And indeed, uh, she is quoted as having, as ha having said that the law of God should be upheld by government. That was, she's quoted as having said that. Yet she herself has broken that law spectacularly and turned out to be a major hypocrite. But this is exactly the problem of humanity. We are very high on principle and very low on performance. We have great moral understanding, yet we fail to live up to it. Human beings are great at finding wrong in others, Yet we're not so great at accepting it when we ourselves do things wrong. Everybody believes in telling the truth. And everybody lies. And this is precisely the point that Paul is making as he continues in Romans. From uh, chapter 1 verse 18, he has been showing us that humanity is under God's judgment. That both Jew and Gentile will face that judgment. And this judgment will be impartial. It will be based on what we do. And now he continues this argument, showing us how the law of God affects his judgment, or affects this judgment. For remember, he's addressing primarily at this point in his argument Jewish moralizers in this section. Jews who saw themselves as superior 
to the pagans because they had the law of God. They were the Jews. They were God's chosen people. Yet Paul is not only going to show them that they will be judged like everyone else, but that their special status as they saw it was not what they thought it was. So I want to look at this passage, and like I say, it's going to be a sweeping view right through it uh, in terms of three things. First, we're going to look at law and judgment. Law and judgment, then law and Jewishness, and then law and humanity. Law and judgment, law and Jewishness, and law and humanity. So we take up Paul's argument in chapter 2, verses 1, or sorry, verse 12. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. All who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who will be righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous, and so on. For the moralistic person whom uh, Paul was speaking to, what he says in this passage from uh, verse 12 through to verse 16 was going to smart a lot. For as they saw themselves, they would have never expected to hear that they might be under God's judgment in the same way as the pagans were that Paul had described in in chapter 1. They saw themselves as being superior to those evil pagans. Uh, Part of the reason for this was they they saw themselves with a, a particular status before God as God's people who had God's law, who were moral. So they should be okay with God. Yet Paul not only blows uh, this idea that they won't be judged like the pagans out of the water, but he, he tells them that this judgment, the judgment for the moralizers who have the law and those pagans who don't have it will be the same. It will be an impartial judgment based on the law that each group has, the understanding that each group has. So those who sin but don't have the law that is, the pagans, will perish apart from the law. And this, uh, and this is what, of course, the moralizers would have expected. Yes, of course, that's right. But not only that, those who, who sin under the law, i.e. those who, who have the law, the moralizers, the Jews, they will also be judged by the law that they have. That is, the revealed law, the law of Moses. For, we know, sin is sin whether you know it or not. The law, which is an expression of the character of God, of of the way that humanity was supposed to live in relation to God, it is the, the standard by which we will all be judged by. The law becomes the plumb line, like we're talking to the boys and girls, against which people are measured. How do we measure up? But here's the issue. It's not about hearing the law or about having the law. Or even about knowing the law. It's obedience that counts. Here were the moralizers. The Jews sitting on judgment on these evil pagans. Declaring them to be immoral because what? Because they didn't have the law. Like they did. Now although that's correct. It makes no difference. For they will be judged as well. For obedience to the law is what counts either Jew or Gentile, either pagan or religious. God shows no favoritism, verse 11. So having, having or not having the law is not the issue. Whether you obey the law is the issue. But this raises an interesting point for us because 
how can God then condemn those who have never heard the gospel or indeed the law of Moses or know what is right and what is, what is right and wrong, what God wants? Well, remember in chapter 1, he has already told us that everyone has a knowledge of God and creation, so everyone is guilty of suppressing the truth about God. But he now gives us further evidence that even the pagans who did not have the law of Moses or any understanding of God's special revelation uh, are still condemned. Even those who do not have the law, they still do what the law naturally requires. Now Paul is saying that, sorry, Paul is not saying that they do not sin, but rather that they show by their behavior that the requirements of God's law are written on their heart. And so they become a law for themselves. Ancient pagans always have a moral dimension or always had a moral dimension to their their civilizations. The Greeks, for example, were very concerned with morals. Uh, Paul Barnett in his commentary on this uh, gives the example of Aristotle. Aristotle spoke of written laws uh, which could err and which could change, but he also spoke of general laws uh, which are more in accordance with justice and which never change. He said, this is Aristotle, this law, that is the general law, is not of now or yesterday, but is eternal. In other words, it lasts forever. It's universal. So even when they did not have the law or hear it like the Jews every Sabbath in the synagogue, these pagans still had a moral understanding of what was right and what was wrong. They still understood that there were things which were acceptable universally and things which were not. Even today, we see this in the pagan world in the West. Everyone knows child sex abuse is wrong. Everyone knows that murdering someone is wrong. And so the conscience of these people who do not have the law of Moses bears witness with the internal moral understanding of right and wrong to convict them or even to excuse them, Paul says. Now, Paul's not saying here that they keep the law. It's just that they have this understanding within themselves. And so they further condemn themselves if they, keep to, if they fail to keep their own law that is written on their hearts. And so Jew and Gentile will all perish on the day of God judges men's secrets. Those who have the law will perish. Those who only have it on their conscience will also be judged and perish. For again, it's not having it that counts. It's obedience that counts. So judgment is inescapable, and no amount of privilege will help you, as Paul will show as he now turns exclusively to the, to the Jews. And this is our second point, uh, the beginning chapter, or verse 17. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law, brag about your relationship to God, you know that his will and approve of what is superior because you're instructed by the law. If you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of infants, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then, says Paul, you who teach others, do you teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? And so on. Now let's not underestimate just how shocking this would have been to the Jew who heard it first. After all, 
they saw themselves, rightly so, as the covenant people of God in the Old Testament. God had chosen them. He had given them his law through Moses at Mount Sinai. They saw themselves as being in a very privileged position. Indeed, to suggest that they would be under God's judgment was something unheard of for a Jew. To them, they were secure. They were right with God because of two major things. Firstly, the law, and secondly, circumcision. So firstly, Paul turns to the use of the law. They rely on the law, as Paul says. And through the law, the Jews saw themselves as having this relationship with God. In fact, they bragged about it. They look at themselves as the ones whom God has chosen to reveal his will, and therefore they are the ones who can approve what is superior. They know. But more than that, they saw themselves as a guide for the blind, as a light for those in darkness, as structure of the foolish, as teachers of others, because they had the law. Remember in the Jewish temple, the way it was constructed, there was an outer court, what was known as the court of the Gentiles. And what was supposed to happen there was that people who were not Jews would come and could hear the law being taught to them. But of course, we know in Jesus' day, it was a marketplace, the court of the Gentiles. But again, Paul points out that it's just because they have the law doesn't mean that they're right with God. They themselves, who are morally superior, who teach others, feel to teach themselves. For it's not possession of the law that gives a relationship with God. Rather, it's obedience to the law. So Paul calls them on the use of the law. You who preach against him, do you steal? You who say you should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who brag about the law, do you dishonor, dishonor God? By breaking that law, Paul says. See, the Jews were high on principle, low on performance. And the result is that they were under the judgment that the law required. And what's more, the hypocrisy, their hypocrisy throughout their history resulted in the name of God being blasphemed among the Gentiles. Israel, as a nation, was set in the very middle, the very heart of all the surrounding nations. And God gave them the law. He gave them the law to provide for every area of their lives what they were to eat, what they were to wear, what they were to, to do in terms of the, of the worship of God. Their whole lives were put under this law, and yet they failed to keep it. And as a result, instead of displaying God's glory amongst the nations, his goodness, they failed miserably. And the Gentiles did not see the glory of God or anything like it. And so... They did not know God, know about God's righteousness or his justice, for all they saw were a bunch of hypocrites, high on principle, but very low on performance. But then what about circumcision, of course, because the Jews had circumcision. After, you know, it, surely it was the sign of belonging to God. Surely nobody that is circumcised could be condemned after all, it's the sign of the covenant agreement between God and Abraham and his offspring. But Paul explains that circumcision only has value if you obey the law. For again, the outward sign of circumcision was not what made, uh, made the Jew righteous. Obedience to the law was what God required to be righteous. Thus, it was conceivable 
that an uncircumcised Gentile who kept the law could be regarded as actually being circumcised. That's what Paul says. For the Jew again, they have made the mistake of equating the sign, that is circumcision, with being part of the people of God. Verse 25 and 27. But then, what is a Jew? If that's the case, Paul, what what is a Jew? For if neither having the law nor the sign of circumcision makes you right with God, what is a Jew then? Again, don't underestimate just how radical this kind of thinking was for the people who were hearing this at the first. They had been Jews all their lives. They had been taught this stuff. It had been assumed. They had been in synagogues. They had heard the law read. They had, been, they had their children circumcised. All this wasn't, was true to them. And Paul is totally rethinking everything. Rethinking everything that they thought about themselves, everything about their history, to suggest that the law and circumcision might not make you a Jew would have been unheard of. But this is what Paul says. To trust in mere external things does not provide us with the righteousness that God requires. So Paul says, a man is not a Jew if he is only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, not by the written code. Such a man's praise is not from men, but from God. You see, indeed, what is required is is something on the inside, Paul says. Something that affects the heart, the motives of the whole person. Paul calls it here circumcision of the heart, as Moses himself had called it in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. Now, we're not Jews. Well, there may be some Jews here. And we can't apply these things directly to us, this kind of thinking, But as Christians who live in a very aesthetic culture, it would be all too easy for us to hold on to mere aesthetics, to religious rituals, to ceremonies, and to ways as ways of which we can improve or have a relationship with God. Indeed, much modern religious practice is totally based on the whole idea, and increasingly in evangelical circles as well, sadly to say. We must beware of that. We need to remember that rituals and religion don't make us righteous. Indeed, they can't make us righteous any more than circumcision and the law could make the Jews righteous. It is only through Christ that we are made righteous, as we will go on to see. But now, having raised this serious issue about Jewish identity, about the Jews and the law, Paul, in chapter 3, verse 1 to 8, anticipates now some objections that are going to be thrown at him by the Jews because of what he's saying. Firstly, in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, does Paul's teaching undermine them, the covenant, God's covenant with the Jews? I mean, if circumcision doesn't seem to have any value, if, if if the law doesn't count, well, what about the covenant? Well, what about God's agreement with Abraham and his offspring? Are you undermining that, Paul? For what does it mean if, we, if the law and the sign of circumcision is taken away? Well, Paul says there's great advantage for you having, because in, in having the law, you have the very words of God. God had revealed himself to the Jews. He'd given them his special revelation. They had the word. And so they had advantage of knowing what God was like, 
Not to mention they had the promises of the Messiah, the, the one who was to come. Secondly, in verses 3 to 4, does Paul's teaching nullify God's faithfulness? Or if, if some people don't have faith in God's promises, does that mean that God is unfaithful then? Does that mean that God is not trustworthy if some people don't believe? Not at all, says Paul. For, all, for God will always be true to his word. He will punish sin in accordance with his righteous character. Thirdly, verses 5 and 6, does what Paul teaches call into question God's justice? How can God judge his people when their unrighteousness, when they're being bad, shows up God's righteousness more clearly? In other words, are we not doing God a favor by being sinful to show how righteous God is? And Paul points out the stupidity of the argument. For if that were the case, how, would God, how could God be judge of the world as the Jews himself believed him to be? If he wasn't just in his judgments, then he couldn't be the judge. Abraham himself uh, had said, will not the judge of all the earth do right? And finally in verses 7 and 8, <clears throat> excuse me, does Paul's teaching falsely promote God's glory? Or put another way, does the end justify the means? God's glory is increased by our falsehood then should we increase our sinfulness so that God receives more glory? But Paul doesn't answer this objection. He just points out that anyone who would be stupid enough to argue from that perspective deserves their condemnation. How utterly stupid. No evil will ever promote the glory of God. So where does that leave the argument then that Paul is making? He begins his conclusion in chapter and verse 9 what shall we conclude then are we any better not at all we have already made the charge that Jew and Gentile alike are all under sin Paul's long argument from chapter 1 verse 18 is now beginning to draw to a close he has shown that everyone deserves God's condemnation for their suppression of the truth even the self-righteous moralizers and the hypocritical Jews are all under his judgment have all failed to live up to the law and thus are rightly condemned. And then in verses 10 to 18, Paul quotes from that very Old Testament law the Jews claim to uphold as the final nail in the coffin for all who considered themselves free from this condemnation and free from God's just judgment. It's as if Paul is closing off every last avenue of escape and he quotes from the law, both Jew and Gentile, religious and pagan, are all under sin. They're all servants of sin, all under its power. Thus, in verses 10 to 12, all of mankind, all of humanity is unrighteous. Every one of us doesn't seek after God or do good. All of life is affected by the sinfulness. In verses 13 to 17, and finally then in verse 18, there is no fear of God. It's quite contemporary really. All of this when we think about our, in light of our own culture and our own society. Human beings are evil and sinful by nature. History proves that 
with empirical evidence to support it and back it up. The history of the 20th century proves that alone. And thus, humanity stands condemned with silent mouths before a holy and just creator God. For there are no excuses, there are no bargains to be struck. Humanity is bad. Um, Last night, Louise and myself watched a DVD. It's the 1986 movie called The Mission. And uh, the storyline basically is we have Jesuit priests who have a mission in South America. And they begin this mission up high up in the Amazon basin. But Portuguese uh, mercenaries come and slaughter the whole lot of them. And there's a scene at the very end of the movie where you have two mercenaries with a cardinal sitting. And they've written a report of the the massacre of the uh, indigenous, indigenous Indians and the Jesuits. And the cardinal asked them, and you come here to justify this to me, this slaughter. And one of the, the mercenaries quotes or says to him, thus is the world. And the cardinal walks across to the window and he looks out the window and he goes, no, thus have we made the world. Thus have I made it. And that's, the whole movie is just worth it for that one quote alone, I guess. Because it shows us, yes, Humanity, by nature, is bad. We do bad things. And the reason they happen is not because of anything in the world itself, but because we make it happen. And we have a problem. Because no amount of good works will provide us a way of escape for that just condemnation that we deserve. There is no salvation in this law that Paul has been speaking about. There is no righteousness available for us in this law. Rather, through this law, that law that condemns us, it shows us a true picture of what humanity really is, of what we are really like. It is the plumb line by which we are measured. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin, says Paul. To try and keep the law is utter stupidity. For this very law, which the Jews were specially privileged to possess, condemns them, then there is not a single person who can count themselves free from it. The law, as the expression of the universal standard of God's holy character, shows us our crookedness and forces us to realize that we cannot be righteous that we cannot be right with God. And that's the story of humanity. High on principle, low on performance. Like Iris Robinson, we can have all this high-minded talk about keeping the law, but in reality, we fail to live up to its demands. For that is the fundamental core of the law. It is not designed to save us. And that's why we must be very careful as we try and legislate morality in any country, for the law can't change people. Now, I'm not saying we need, we need to get rid of laws. That would be utter, utterly stupid. That would be the law of the jungle, the, law of, uh, the, the world of Stalin, the world of Idi Amin, the, law, the world of might is right. That would be silly. But we must understand that the law cannot change society, for it cannot change people. People are bad. They do bad things. They lie, they cheat, they steal, they murder, they commit adultery. People take God's good gifts and they use them for their own selfish gratification and self-centered purposes. 
The law can show us where we go wrong, but it can't change the heart. The law can't make us right with God. No matter how hard we try, the the verdict will always ring true that we are under sin, that we deserve God's punishment because we do not meet his standard, what he expects. And what an awful place to leave a sermon. That's why I want you to come back tonight. To leave us dangling by the thread, by a thread over the abyss as it were. But please remember back to what Paul has said in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, where he talked about a revelation of the righteousness of God in the gospel. You see, herein lies our hope of being right with God. Not in the law or in law-keeping, but in the gospel, where we receive God's righteousness as a gift. We don't earn it by works of the law, but it's given by grace alone. And it's free. This righteousness comes in the gospel, provided for us as the only way we can be made acceptable to God. And what's more, that righteousness, that gospel fundamentally changes us. It turns us round. It sets us on a different path in a relationship with God and in new life. And that's what we will look at next time, tonight. We will see Paul explain in great detail what this righteousness really is. How this righteousness comes to us. How it's possible to come to us in the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we confess before you that we are unworthy to be your children. For we have broken your laws and your commandments. We have suppressed the truth and turn to idols rather than serving you, the living and true God. Help us in the weakness of our sinfulness to continually turn in repentance to you and seek your righteousness that you have given us in the gospel of your Son. Help us to trust in him alone and not in our self-sufficiency or ability to keep your law. For it is only in him that we may know you and live with you as part of your heavenly family. Amen.